You're listening to Mammal Watching with Charles Foley and John Hall. You can find other episodes at mammalwatching.com slash podcast. Hi, John. How are you? I'm good, Charles. And how are you? Yeah, not bad, thanks. Not bad. Good. So today, I think, John, that we are going to dispense with our customary introductory chat with each other because the guest on our program today is you. And I know that I certainly have a lot of questions for you, and I'm sure that you have lots of great stories that our listeners will want to hear. So if it's okay with you, I think we'll just jump straight into the interview. That sounds fine to me. Thanks, Charles. By way of a brief introduction, for those of you who don't know who John is, um, in 2005, John set up a website called mammalwatching.com, which is, in fact, the site that hosts this podcast. And John also runs a North American mammal watching group on Facebook, as well as a nascent YouTube channel, also about mammal watching, of course. And John is well known in the mammal watching community as being the person who has seen more mammal species than anyone else in the world. Now, John, I think it's fair to say that you have been at the hub of the mammal watching community for the past 15 years or so, but you're actually a late bloomer to mammal watching. Can you tell us a little bit about how you became a mammal watcher and, and what sort of influences you had? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was a late bloomer in taking it seriously, but I think like so many of us, you know, it started when I was very, very young. So some of my earliest memories as a kid were a stuffed wild boar head on a ho- in a hotel in France that I was just fascinated by. And I must have been about three, um, crying my eyes out in, in, in the back of the car in Scotland with my parents while they were looking at red deer and I couldn't spot them. That's absolutely that, <laughs> something that's continued through life, actually, that kind of feeling. And another very, very early memory is, is, is my father... And this was a regular thing, lifting me up over the railings and putting my head inside the outstretched jaws of a hippopotamus while I was screaming. Now, this was a stuffed hippo, I hasten to add, but it was still terrifying for, for a three-year-old. Um, These were railings where? Railings in, I think, Exeter Natural History Museum. I remember railings. <laughs> okay. It was probably a piece of string to right. stop people touching it. But anyway, it was a, it was a very big deal um, to my little self. And in, I also had a toy zoo that was my pride and joy. And I found um, a letter I'd, I'd written to Father Christmas, um, which, which is classic because it just lists the animals I wanted for my zoo. That was really all that was in this letter. And the thing is, the, um, the mammals on the list were the same mammals that are still on my sort of top 20 encounters. You know, there's gorilla, there's a carpet. So all of these things at a very early age, you, you could see it coming. Was it Socrates who said, give me the, the child until he's seven and I will show you the man? Um, but then, yeah, for sure, when I hit, when I was a teenager, it just, just all this disappeared. And then after I left university, I moved to Zambia for a year. And that was a, you know, within a week, I was on my first game drive. And this was a total epiphany. All, all the David Attenborough stuff as a kid came flooding back. It felt like I was seeing in colour for the first time on that, that game drive. I'd never felt anything like it. This was love at first sight. Wow. The, the violins were playing, the birds were spinning around my head singing and the thunder was <laughs> clapping. And that, that I think was really where it, where it began in earnest. That's interesting because both for me and Cheryl, who we interviewed previously, Africa was the 
place where we also became mammal watchers. Um, there is really something about that continent, isn't there? There really is. Um, it's there's nothing nowhere like it. It's it's spectacular, and we you know everyone who's been there I think will will understand and agree with that. Yeah, yeah. John, what was the moment that you realized that you had become a mammal watcher because you flirted with becoming a bird watcher at one point, didn't you? Um, well, in when I was in Zambia, I started a list, of course, because I love my lists. I started a list of mammals I'd seen, but I was in, interested in everything, reptiles, um, even birds. And I, you know, at the end of that year, I was actually offered a job as a guide in a in a like a fancy safari camp in the lower Zambezi, which I was desperate to take. But my my parents insisted I, I come home and get a proper job. So I reluctantly did that, got back to the UK, um, and it, it just crushed me. It was so gray and crowded and it was you know, everything that Africa isn't. So I thought, well, I've got to keep this connection with the bush. What can I do to, to, to recreate the, the safaris of Zambia? So I thought, well, maybe I'll go bird watching. That seems a popular thing. So I rocked up at the local um, RSPB reserve in Essex and it was a cold, probably a cold day in February or January. And you know, it, it was it was the seventh circle of hell. Um, <laughs> there were crowds of people wandering around, mainly these these kind of middle-aged men with bad raincoats on, talking into cassette recorders. Pigeon, two blackbirds, <laughs> seagull. And I, I just thought, I'm not going to get my nature connection this way. This, this isn't going to work. So I thought, what can I do? To at least be on my own and do something a bit different because I, I do like to be different. So um, I thought, I know, let me focus on the mammals because no one seems to be doing that. Um, so that was when the, you know, I, 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 I self-identified as a mammal watcher. I think the moment I realized that this was more than just a hobby or an interest uh, and would be, I would say a passion, others might say obsession, was the day I heard there was a southern elephant seal in Geelong, uh, near Melbourne in Australia. Uh, I was in Canberra and I got in the car and I drove 1,673 kilometers, I think it was, in one day to spend an hour on the beach with the seal. It was well worth it, but literally 5 a.m. in the car, drove all the way, possibly stopped uh, for a pee in McDonald's, um, saw the seal, took pictures, drove straight home again. And that was when I began to think, Okay, maybe this isn't totally normal. For, well, maybe other people wouldn't see this as totally normal. <laughs> yes. Fair enough. <laughs> so what drove you to set up the Mammal Watching website? It was, you know, the, the love of wildlife then that led me to move to Australia. Um, and I took it, started taking it pretty seriously there. But it was in, as I was about to leave Australia, I'd spent seven years, you know, touring that country, traveling as much as I could, trying to see as many mammals. I, I saw I, uh, 250 different species in, in that time. But all the information I'd got was either trawled um, from, from birdwatching reports, where there was often a, an addendum at the end with mammals, and they might mention two or three species, or by talking to professional mammalogists, to researchers and scientists, volunteering to help um, grad students with projects. So I I'd got a, a lot of information that wasn't available anywhere else. And I thought, well, it, you know, I'm probably the world's only mammal watcher, but I should put this out there in case someone else like me comes along because it, wouldn't it be helpful to have this kind of information that the bird has had? So that's when I started the website, really to share that information 
that I that I'd gathered in seven years in Australia. And how do you see websites like yours and the internet in general as having affected the way that we watch mammals? Um, I, I think two, probably two big reasons. The first is, you know, when I when I set this up, I really thought I was the only mammal watch or one of two or three other guys I knew in Australia who were doing it as well, but they were birders at heart. Um, but people, you know, you got in touch with me fairly on, Charles, people started getting in touch saying, wow, I've always been interested in mammals. This is, this is great to have this resource. So there was a, a, a community began to grow. And once there's a community, you know, you, you feel like you've got some friends and um, it, it makes it more fun. So that, there was that kind of community spirit around it. Um, but of course, the big thing is information because you know, there is so much information about birds with where to find bird guides for so many countries, so many trip reports. And mammal, it's very, very hard when you try and, when you used to try to plan a trip and there was no information about it. Like, I wanted to see a snow leopard. Uh, of course, desperate to see a snow leopard in the early 2000s. And I, was, I, I met an Australian guy who'd done his PhD on them in Nepal and he'd been there three years and he hadn't seen one. So there was just no information about how how to find them, where to go, when to go. Um, none of that was there. But once you know, information starts appearing from others, it's, it begins to snowball. And all of a sudden, yeah, there are places now to see snow leopards. There are places to see so many species that just 15 years ago were a, a crazy pipe dream. Um, and so it, that's really changed, I think, that amount of information. It's growing very, very fast. Every year, we're, we're getting places to see some of these things that I thought I would never see when I started. Yeah. I totally agree with that. Prior to the internet, basically the only people who could tell you where to go and find some of these rare species were academics or little groups of people who typically kept the information to themselves. And I remember trying to find a site to see Spanish links outside of mm -hmm. Cotoluniana, which was really hard to get into. And it took me years and basically following a trail of friend of a friend of a friend before I heard about Andujar and in the Sierra Morenas where you could actually go and, and see them. And now someone just needs to go onto your website and you can type in Spanish links and out will come Andujar. It will tell you where exactly in Andujar you can go, which are the best viewing spots, uh, where to stay, best time of the year. All of those things are, mm -hmm. are now out there. So it really, I think that really has changed the face of uh, how we watch mammals, hasn't it? No, I, I mean, it, it certainly has. It's a lot easier. I mean, there are, of course, there are, of course, people who don't want to share information, um, sometimes for very good reason. Um, they're very worried about a species. If they put it where it is, it may, get, it may get hunted or too many people. So I'm very cautious of sharing any information that isn't mine. If someone's shared something with me in, in confidence, I won't, I won't share it back. But anything, almost anything I see, I, I want to put it out there to help people um, to help people see it because for me the pressure the threats that are that most mammals are facing are not are not from the pressures of mammal watching tourists going to bother them it's it's habitat loss it's all the other things we know about and um encouraging people to go and see them it, with the links there's a whole economy now around that the links in under her and that's i'm sure contributes quite a lot to why they're being protected and they're doing so well is because there's money in it for local people yeah um yeah. so the more i you know the more i can do for that i think i'm you know that that's a service that everyone who, who contributes to a report is doing. Yeah, I agree. As you said earlier, this is something that's just snowballing. More and more people are doing it. More and more money is going into it. And for the most part, that 
can probably only be a good thing. So John, you have seen close to 2000 species of mammal at last count. I know this is gonna be really unfair, but I'm gonna ask you to pick out a few of your favorites <laughs> of those 1900 plus uh, mammal species. I know that uh, you mentioned on the introductory chat that you saw uh, an aardvark on your 40th birthday, yeah. which was obviously a, uh, a major sighting for you. Yeah. But tell us about some of your other best sightings and what it is about those particular sightings that make them so special for you? Yeah, I mean, it's this is, of course, a question that I'm often asked and I've thought about a lot. I mean, in some ways, they're all special, or nearly all of them. Um, and it's a bit like asking me to choose my favorite child. Um, <laughs> of course, I have one, but I'm not going to say which one is. No, um, I I think probably the ones that the, the ones that are most memorable that really gave me the biggest the biggest thrill of finding seeing things that I didn't think I was going to see, seeing big sort of mega charismatic species that there were, there were no reports for. Um, it's that sort of, it's that journey into the unknown when you visit somewhere that, you know, very few other people have gone mammal watching in and you actually see something spectacular. Um, they're, they're the most exciting because it's like, whoa, this was a big surprise. It's a fantastic thing to see. But also we can we can tell other people about this. This is awesome. We've got something really nice to, to share. So you know when you and I saw that pygmy hippo in in Sierra Leone, that was that was a moment um, exactly like that because we went there. No one had no mama watched and seen one there. We knew we were there, and we we got lucky um, seeing um, giant pangolins in in Gabon. It's a species I did not expect to see there. We actually saw two. Uh, in two weeks again another mega mega mammal that was just fabulous yes um, but... um <clears throat> you did invite me on that trip john and <laughs> i turned you down to go to central african public and uh it's all right it's only taken five years and several thousand dollars of therapy <laughs> session for me to get over it but <laughs> i'm almost there <laughs> yeah that was unfortunate charles i wish you had come i think one of the first things i thought after seeing it was oh shit charles is <laughs> charles is not going to be happy i'm sorry <laughs> i will forgive you one day john <laughs> i felt guilty <laughs> um but if i had to pick just one i would say it was my trip to china in, in 2005 uh, to look for giant pandas that was um, was was perhaps the most remarkable in a number of ways. And I, I can tell, tell you a little bit more about why that was the case. So I'm leaving Australia in late 2005 and I have to go over to Europe for a new job. And um, of course, ooh, I'll, be, I'll have to stop in Asia somewhere. So why don't I add in a week's mammal watching en route? Um, so I thought, you know, I'd really like to see a giant panda. So, you know, looking on the internet, there's nothing. Uh, I talked to a couple of bird guides in Australia who've spent a lot of led a lot of trips through China and the advice is you've got no chance no one's ever seen one it's not possible it's all closed to westerners where they are and they're very rare anyway then I stumbled on a, a fledgling project that, that was WWF funded I believe um, an eco lodge in the Kindling Mountains in the middle of China uh, and it was called wildgiantpanda.com and they were offering to run these trips for people like me to go and look for a panda so I didn't know anything about this outfit, um, didn't know what to expect, but you know, thought, well, why not give it a shot? Um, so a few weeks later, I was, you know, I was packing to leave, and I get an email from them, um, literally the day before I'm getting on the plane, saying, "Looking forward to meeting you, Mr. John. 
um, some news, don't be alarmed, but there was a landslide and the road into the reserve is closed. So you have to walk 25 Ks to get in there now, but it's no problem. We'll have horses for your bags. Well, oh, no, this doesn't, this doesn't bode well. So get there and the horses are there and we, we walk in, it's a beautiful walk. Um, the camp itself was probably one of the most basic places I've ever stayed. There was, there was no, no toilet, uh, no shower, the, nothing, but the, the guides, um, the two guides I was introduced to, um, they were two still of the most extraordinary trackers um, I've, I've ever encountered. So the, the basic deal was there, we'd walk into the forest every day with those two. They spoke no English. The only word we had in common was panda. Um, <laughs> there was an interpreter who was sent along with me as part of the package. I actually think she might've been working for the Chinese government to keep an eye on me is my guess, because she was, I mean, she spoke perfect English, but she was completely hopeless in the forest. And it was very clear early on that Mr. Zhang and Mr. Mr. Hay didn't want her around. And I think it was on like early on we got we flushed a wild boar and she screamed and that was it. She didn't come out again with us. So everyone was pleased that she was staying in camp. Um, and the deal was we just walk into this you know fairly dense forest, following little creeks. There were no trails, and they would walk for 45 minutes and it's up very up and down. They'd find a little little rise or a little hilltop. We'd sit down for 10 minutes and have a, a cup of hot water from the thermos and they just listen. And I didn't hear anything, but they'd sort of they'd point in, in a direction and off we'd head. And 20 minutes later, you know, the first morning, golden snub-nosed monkeys, that beautiful, ridiculously colorful and strange looking monkey. Um, and on the first day we had, you know, a couple of Himalayan goral on cliffs, which are that weird deer, antelope, goat, cross, strange looking things. Um, lots of panda poo everywhere, big green lumps of, of, of um, bamboo, bamboo flavored, I suppose, dung. Um, lots of sign of pandas, but no, no pandas. So second day, same deal, went out all day with these guys. They found, we found golden takin, um, which another like extraordinary animal. That's like a, an Asian muskox. They're, they're in the goat family, but they look like a Highland cow crossed with a moose. And actually I was reading about these the other day. Um, the golden takin, the subspecies uh, that's there in the Kindling Mountains is thought to have been the, the legend of the golden fleece. That Jason and the Argonauts were really? after. So that's what I read on Wikipedia. So it must be true. <laughs> um, so we saw, you know, lots of really cool mammals, all, you know, every day, just brilliantly found by these two, these two trackers, no pandas. And on the third day, it looked like the weather was going to start changing. So I was getting nervous because I think I only had five days there. Um, and on the third day, this was panda day. Like we made up, you know, a big effort. So by the afternoon on the third day, um, we we were very close to Panda's very fresh sign. And then the guys heard, heard one and it was like, Panda. And there was something moving through the bamboo, probably no more than 10 meters in, but dense, you couldn't, we couldn't see it. So we crawled along on our hands and knees for I'd say an hour, picking little twigs and sticks out of the way so we made no sound, just following this animal as it was leisurely moving through the bamboo, hoping to get a glimpse, but, um, but nothing. It didn't show itself. It was just dawdling along eating. So the guys then hatched a plan and um, I, I somehow understood exactly what they were planning to do, even though I, you know, obviously we couldn't communicate. So one of them uh, was going to stay with the panda and me and I think Mr. Hay went down to a clearing down the hill. And I think the plan was that, 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 that Mr. Zhang um, would flush the panda out and it would come down the hill and we'd see it in its clearing. 
So we're there and we take you know, different sides of the clearing to keep a lookout, not knowing where it'll come out. And of course it comes out right by Mr. Hayes' feet. So he's got a little point and shoot camera and he gets this kind of close up. He could have had a selfie with his camera and I'm charging over there to, to get a, he's beckoning me like this and whether it's fast or slow or quiet or, but I just sprint in the end, I've got to see this thing. So I got like three seconds of this panda looking at me, moving away and turning around, looking over its shoulder at me. And I could, that is still as fresh in my mind today as it was in 2005. And I remember waking up the next morning and it's like one of those, you know, when something really good's happened and you wake up and you don't, you don't really think about it. And then like a minute later, it's holy moly, I saw a panda. No one's going to believe this. This is so cool. Um, Warm like, glow, isn't absolutely. it? Yeah. It's, yeah. You think I could die happy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. What a sighting that is. And because it's such a stunning creature as well isn't it's it it's stunning you know it's the wwf emblem um right. it's so many it's everyone knows a panda and it's so rare and it's, it's so yeah. for so many reasons but also the experience of being in the in the bush with these two guys was just extraordinary they they were they were just mammal whisperers they could find these things and i've never met anyone quite like them right and you know what's interesting about that is the chase is part of the whole thing if you had bumped into a panda within five minutes of being there it probably just wouldn't have had the same effect i'd have is felt that... cheated yeah absolutely right. cheapen that... the whole experience yeah. it's that fact that it was difficult and it was tough and you yeah. had to go on your hands and knees and all of that just adds up to the experience that when you do finally see it it's it's just something it's like exactly. a religious experience isn't exactly it? yeah yeah so John, with your mammal watching, you keep a list of uh, mammals that you want to see, isn't it? Is, is it your top 10 or 20 species that-, that Top 21, in fact. Yeah. Oh, top 21. I don't know why. I think I probably couldn't decide when I tried to go for 20, I had one left over. So it's top <laughs> 21, yeah. So you, as you see them, you will then sort of move those off the list and then you add some new ones. So what, what criteria do you use to add new ones to your list? You know, it's 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 a mixture probably of charisma, rarity, general weirdness, and difficulty to see mystique. Something I've looked for and failed to see, of which there are many, that often then gives them an edge up the ladder to the top 21. Anything with giant or pygmy in it is usually something <laughs> pretty cool. Giant pangolin, giant armadillo, pygmy hippo. Um, or any something that's unusual and unique, like an aardvark, something that's, there's nothing else quite like it. They're in a group of their own. And some things are just really cool, like 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 the markhor, the fantastic goat from the the mountains of Central Asia, which I think has the longest horns of any antelope or any animal probably. But the spiral horn thing, just things like that, uh, spectacular. You know, I have a sort of basic goal every year to see fifty, but it's it's both quality and quantity. So I have this twenty one top twenty one to see list that's always there, bubbling away, and I will try and pick trips that that target some of those. So. On your current list of 21, what would you say are your top three most wanted? Uh, for sure, a carpy, as you know, we've yeah, talked about this course. many times, is number yes. one. Um, number two would have to be bush dog, small, you know, small canine from, 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 from Central and South America. They're just so cool, like little packs of them trotting through the rain, the forest, but very, very hard to see because they're perpetual wanderers. So people see them from time to time, but there's no spot for those yet. Right. Number three, I think chihuahuas, aren't they? They, sort of like, they, are, they, they go walking around yeah. together. <laughs> they're not really fierce. They seem to run everywhere, <laughs> don't they? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they do. They're always trotting. Um, they're like puppies out off the leash. Um, and number three, I don't know. Maybe at the moment, maybe that 
tough, that one floats, but Tufted Ground Squirrel right now is definitely up there. We talked about that yes. a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Right. You mentioned Marco. Now, let me take you back to that one because I remember you telling me some crazy story about you going to great lengths to, to see this species. Can, can you remind me of that? Yeah, this um, not one of my most um, sensible choices, perhaps, but um, you know, of course, I, Marco was on the list, so I was going to do anything I could to see one. And in 2011, I got the chance uh, to go and do some work in, in Pakistan. Um, I was working for a development um, agency there. So I'm going to Pakistan. Fantastic. I could, I could go and look for a Marco at the weekend, right? Um, but of course, the security situation, at least then in Islamabad, was, was fairly serious. And no one from our organization in France had ever been had ever been to Pakistan. So my mate, who's the head of security there, he's a former commander in the French police, a really good guy, calls me up because um, he has to give clearance for me to go. And he's like, John, I know you and your mammals, but this is very serious. You must promise not to go and look for any crazy mammals in Pakistan. You must, you must stay in Islamabad. You must not leave the hotel. You promise? Yeah, Andre, I do. I definitely promise. I was probably at the same time on Facebook connecting with a friend of a friend <laughs> who um, ran an agency in the Hindu Kush. And he was like a solid guy. I think he's the first Pakistani ever to climb Mount Everest. So, you know, someone you, you could trust. Going, you know, how, how can I go and see um, a marker? I know they're around Chitral up there in the Hindu Kush, but is it safe? What do we do? Um, and I kind of, I mean, he said it was safe and it was fine. I think someone else told me at the time, go, but don't stay more than 48 hours. If you can go there for the weekend, you're good. But longer than that, there's a decent chance the Taliban are going to discover you. Um, so you need to, it needs to be short and sweet. So, right, that's my weekend sorted. Okay, so um, the, the the plan was I would fly from Islamabad um, to Chitral. But the planes I was warned often, were 50% you know, of them had cancelled because of the weather. And of course, on Saturday morning, the plane was cancelled and at the airport. But the guys that the tour agency I was using had another plan and we drove, we drove up to a town, I think called Deer in a, in a small car with this crazy, crazy driver. Um, it was so fast. And then there I was met um, in a four wheel drive by the, by the two guides that had actually helped the BBC with their Snow Leopard documentary. Some of the first footage of Snow Leopards was from up there. And they drove me there and we, we went through some of these ridiculous roads where just um, cracks cut out of the cliff. We went through a tunnel that hadn't been finished that was being built by the by the Korean Development Agency that was partially flooded um, and it was only open for an hour a day for people desperate not to go with the mountains. So a, a difficult trip. Um, got there and people were delighted that I was there. I was maybe the first tourist they'd seen in years because of the Taliban. I was assigned um, a soldier with a gun who slept outside my hotel room. So all, you know, it was all a big adventure. Very security conscious and on the first day we go up to look for these marker and we're driving through some of those remote valleys and the wheel dropped off the car the drive shaft broke on the car it just <laughs> clonked so i'm in the middle of nowhere standing outside the car waiting for another vehicle to arrive with my camera my binoculars <laughs> stamp sticking out like a sore thumb um so anyway nothing happened it was all good we saw the marker that afternoon fantastic they, they climbed trees these things halfway up a tree just weird things and of course beautiful beautiful animals that was really great but the twist in, and I got back then I had to the flight was cancelled again on Sunday so I had to drive back to Islamabad but got home all good um and then 
a few days later, I'm reading the newspaper. I think it was like literally a week later and Bin Laden had just been caught, um, just been killed in Pakistan. And I'm like, ooh, that's interesting. So <laughs> I look at where he was and I look at the map and I think I probably was within about 20 miles of where he was at one point on the way up because he was just north of Islamabad. Um, and the thing was, I was in the car driving around there and I was so excited to be to be on the road in Pakistan. And I was texting all my friends going, ooh, I, I think I just saw Bin Laden. Look, I'm sending pictures. And if Homeland Security weren't listening into my chatter, I, I don't know. So <laughs> that was, um, I, I'm glad I got back in one piece from that one, but I have seen a Markle. John, you do realise that this is about mammal watching, not about James bloody Bond. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, it's me it would be Mr. Bean or Inspector Clouseau most of the time in my case, and I'm not James Bond. <laughs> yeah, just hold on a second there. John, you need to write something down. Cancel all travel plans with John Hall. <laughs> oh, Charles, no. Right. I'm a changed man. I've changed. <laughs> Sensible only now. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, we've talked a lot about travel, and obviously you travel a phenomenal amount. You also have a family. Um, and this is something that mammal watchers struggle with. It's like, you know, there's, there's only a certain amount of time in, in the day, in the year. And how did you meld your mammal watching hobby with your family life? <laughs> um, I mean, the, the first, probably the most truthful answer is I, I didn't. Um, the second one would be brute force. Um, <laughs> you know, I have an ex-wife who you could probably talk to about this more more than me to get a more accurate answer but um with my kids they i've taken a lot of trips with them um and they have uh i think they've enjoyed some of them uh, my son has probably enjoyed all of them my daughter not so much katie i think you know to begin with when they're young they, they've always traveled so they're great travelers but uh, increasingly katie especially finds it boring now to go and look for animals Partly, I think there's a typical sort of sibling dynamics there where if her brother's really into it, she, she, she can't be. Just you know, siblings can't agree on things like that. Um, but, you know, one thing I've learned um, now that they, you know, they're old enough to have an opinion and actually to sort of strike back when I'm trying to force these, these you know, bat and rat catching twitch fests on them as trips is something that is actually your advice, Charles. I don't know if you remember, but you said you'd found with your girls um, that while they might not be into the, the sort of listing trips, they did like the quest for a, for a certain species. And one of the best trips, you know, I ever, I think I followed, was following advice on this, I ever had with my kids was in 2014 and um, they were supposed to be coming here to New York to visit for the holidays, but Katie broke her arm and I had to travel to see her. And so I thought, well, I'm gonna be in Europe for like 10 days, what on earth am I gonna do? And I just can't, comprehend holidays that don't involve mammals it just my brain just sort of freezes up and I short circuit I don't even know where to start so I'm like oh I don't know what can we do we have to do something and someone had just reported there was a I got like a news piece of news information or a, a clipping or something saying um there was a Mediterranean monk seal in Croatia uh you know Europe's one of Europe's rarest mammals there's only a few hundred of these seals left and it's something I look forward I looked for in Turkey and, and didn't see so I thought, you know, let's let's drive to Croatia from France. Maybe we can find this monk seal. Um, and so we had this wonderful road trip where we drove through Italy and got to Croatia. And I didn't even know where to begin. 
So I started talking to people and what I discovered was the Croatians are some of the friendliest people on the planet. And everywhere I went, they were kind of fascinated that we were after this thing and they were calling neighbors. And it was like this, um, this treasure hunt, like from one lead to another. And on the, on the penultimate day, we, took, we got to the right areas, the Istrian Peninsula around Pula. And we knew the seal was around there, but no one quite knew where. And I was getting a bit forlorn and we were driving around these sort of areas where maybe there'd be a seal. And we stopped at this bar on a cliff top, like a beach bar by the ocean. Uh -huh. And there was a sign about monk seals and a closed circuit TV pointing at this cave. So holy moly, this is where the seal, one of the caves it was using. And it wasn't there at the moment, even though I scrambled and was dived sort of looking over the ledge, but they knew the people who were working to protect the seal. And they were, there was an NGO who were basically following the seal around. And every time there was a report of it hauled out on a beach somewhere, they'd swoop in with cones to try and keep people away. Um, and so the next morning, like 7 a.m. like with the phone rings and it's with the seal is on this beach here and we're driving to see it and I remember then Katie who's like the biggest mama watching skeptic at times she was in the back seat of the car <laughs> jumping up and down come on we've got to get faster daddy faster we have to get there and we got there and we saw it and took pictures and it was uh, just fantastic so the quest the quest works I've learned I don't try and inflict um too much on them not on Katie at least anymore though Patrick he's a different story he he loves being in the jungle though i'm ashamed to say uh he's more into invertebrates and bugs um than mammals so <laughs> can't have everything but right <laughs> yeah you know the thing about kids is that they can get used to pretty much everything or anything our girls were probably about eight before they realized that most families didn't actually spend every single holiday looking for mammals right <laughs> <laughs> that they were <laughs> this was actually rather unusual but that's a fairly you know good long time frame to work with eight years <laughs> hopefully you can keep them uh <laughs> maybe we should start in a, the dark <laughs> we should start a cult and move to a remote area of oregon and we can all raise our kids in blissful ignorance that, that might be the way to do it so what's next, John? What, what are your next really big mammal targets? Well, like everyone, it's been a bit tricky uh, the past year to, to plan too much without getting disappointed. Um, two trips I'm really looking forward to that I hope I will be able to do um, in the next 12 months is uh, the Horn of Africa, which you and I have talked about and we'll hopefully go together um, to see things like Dibitag, naked mole rat perhaps and uh, an African wild ass which is um this is just something about seeing a, a real genuine wild ass in Africa that really excites me um and the other one is New Guinea West Papua in New Guinea where a friend of um you know he, and he's a bird watcher he's rapidly coming over to the mammal side of very very good bird watcher he's a bird guide but he's really got into his mammals um and we're planning a trip there as soon as we can and there's you know a decent chance of two different tree kangaroos yeah. long beaked echidna the spiny anteater but the oh, big one uh, which i don't know anyone who's ever reported that there's a really really good chance for these he reckons we can get we could get 50 mammals all of which will probably be new in in two weeks and for me this is probably the last major ecosystem eco zone i haven't been to mm -hmm. um and so it, it'll be the, uh, my last chance of that that sort of trip where everything we see is new uh, and they are the best trips. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Well, that all sounds fantastic. Fingers crossed on the whole Horn of Africa trip. Of course, Ethiopia 
has uh, been having a few issues at the moment, but let's hope that all clears up. I hope so too. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. We live in hope. Well, John, thank you so much. This has been absolutely fantastic. And I look forward to catching up with you on the next episode. A real pleasure, Charles. Thank you. It's always good to chat. See you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Memo Watching with Charles Foley and John Hall. You can find other episodes at memowatching.com slash podcast.